So this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 14 uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, to verse 10. And with respect to these verses, I do believe that as Paul wrote a continuous letter uh, to the church in Corinth, uh, you see that I believe this context certainly fits together in the last two verses or the last three verses of chapter 2. Uh, as it flows naturally into chapter 3. So we look to that this morning, specifically verse uh, 14, where he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And then he says, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I want us to start there as we consider what Paul defines as those who are spiritual. And so that is the title concerning our message this morning, those who are spiritual. And I believe that uh, we will get to about uh, verse four and five, and then we'll look at some of the other verses as we continue our time in this Lord willing uh, next week. Uh, But Paul wrote to the Corinthians that a man in his flesh cannot properly discern nor receive the things of God. So that is where Paul starts. He says uh, that a man in his flesh cannot properly discern or receive the things of God. And the reason that he says that that's the case is because the things that are given to us, the spiritual things, they are interpreted by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. And this will be key when we begin to get Uh, to the phase of Corinthians where Paul discusses the spiritual gifts, that that which is given to us is given to us by the Spirit, and their use is laid out to us by the Spirit, and also we are then uh, given things that are interpreted by the Spirit. So it's not left to man to decide what to do with what God has deemed spiritual. It is left up to man to do what he has been called to do on the basis of what the Spirit has determined Uh, to be the will of God. And yet Paul writes also that these things can only be understood by those who have the mind of Christ. So that's what these particular verses are dealing with. We spoke last time about the difference and distinction of having the spirit of God versus those who have the spirit of the world. And the fact that the wisdom that we have from God results in speech, but in practice. And here Paul is saying that the interpretation of those things are left up to the spirit to give to us. And we are to practice what is directly in line with what we have received. And here he's defining who then possesses spiritual things. Who is it that has spiritual things and how are those spiritual things to be put into use? So he says spiritual things essentially can only be received by those who are spiritual. And let me help you understand what that term means, as you probably know, because today the term spiritual is meant to mean everything that's not designatedly exclusive and everything that is not simply Christianity itself in its truest form. But to be spiritual uh, in the in the modern time in which we live means that you're simply acquainted with the idea or notion of a higher being. 
And that is not how Paul is using this. He's saying that in a very specific way, it is to be born again. It is to be indwelled by the Spirit of God. It is to be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So to call oneself spiritual is then we are recovering the term for what it means when Paul wrote what it meant. And it is to be given things, divinely given things, illumination, understanding, our new birth by God's Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritual. And so spiritual in this case refers to those who have tasted the new birth, who have been born again by God's spirit, born from above. Paul is referring to those who are joint heirs in Christ. He's referring to those who have openly confessed Jesus Christ as Lord in agreement with his substitutionary atonement, meaning him offering himself as a substitute for sinners who could not bring themselves to be eternally reconciled to God on their own. He's referring to those who openly agree and testify to his perfect sacrifice, his sinless life, and his resurrection. So when Paul says those who are spiritual, he is referring to those who agree with the things and many more things that I've just outlined for you in true Christianity. So he's defining spirituality along those lines. It would then be proper to say that all who do not believe in Christ Jesus exclusively are then secular. So those who are spiritual believe in the spirit of God. They believe in the triune God. They believe in God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes that distinction because even in the verse that we look at in verse 12, He makes a distinction between those who have the spirit of the world. So there's only those who are spiritual and have the Holy Spirit in them. And then those who are uh, who have the spirit of the world and they are therefore secular. They are those who they have the world and the world system. They are indwelled not by God's spirit, but the spirit of the age. So there there, too, is the only distinctions. And you see why our terms are so important, because. Our terms are certainly in a society in which everything is up for grabs by way of defining things. It's important to understand what Paul means when he says words like spiritual, because that is what is meant by that. God gets to define the way that words are defined and what they mean and how we use them. And so then it is true that this does not belong to everyone, that those who are spiritual is not everyone for Paul is then going to deal with the fact that there are those who are in the flesh. And he speaks about those individuals beginning specifically in verse 14. He says, but a natural man, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. And you see in this argument that Paul is making, he's about to connect this back to the conflict that is raging between the folks in Corinth and also uh, the, the way that Chloe's people had caught in wind of it and how they brought it before Paul the Apostle, because what he's going to charge them with is committing fleshly acts, being in the flesh. And so he's saying the way you're acting in this conflict is demonstrating more about you, that you belong to the flesh than you do the spirit. And so Paul is going to deal with that explicitly. And he's going to say, listen, if you are a spiritual person, then you will act in agreement with the spirit of God. For that is the only way that uh, the term is understood here. 
So this doesn't belong to everyone. Those who are in the flesh cannot see things for what they are. They can't behold the great treasure. And in this particular conflict that we're about to be reintroduced to, the problem that they faced is that they could not see Christ for who he is in all of his glory. And therefore, they substituted that for the glory of men. They could not boast in Christ for his saving work. And therefore, what they did then is they boasted in the glory of men. And in fact, more specifically, those who are in the flesh can only stoop to hero worship. Those who are in the flesh can only worship their heroes. And so Paul is saying that these individuals are in the flesh. So here in verse 14, he sets up that contrast. The natural man, he says, cannot accept the things of the spirit of God. He can't accept them because to him they are useless. The natural man has no use for spiritual things. He has no use for things that belong to the spirit of God. He sees no benefit to them and he sees no use for them in the economy of his own foolishness. He is building his own kingdom, and in doing so, as a fool does, he cannot regard wisdom as a part of building the house and the foundation that God would have him to build. He's too busy constructing foolishness and constructing it through idolatry, constructing it through sin in the general and also in the specific senses. But even more, he cannot understand these things, Paul says. He cannot understand these things. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Well, why? Because he's fallen, because they are spiritually appraised, because in his natural state, being dead in his sins, antagonistic toward God, alienated from God, he can't not only come to terms with what is uh, true, he can't appraise what is true and come to a right understanding of it and therefore a right practice of it. It is why Paul ties the practical element of true Christianity to the element of what one believes and confesses. It's why they are so closely aligned together and can never be separated. He cannot understand this. He's dead in his sins. And that's what Paul says. Such a man is dead in his sins that he can't understand these things. He's still living in the flesh. And the great torment of this is that it is both the effect and the condition. It is the effect and the condition. It is not only what is true of him, but it is his condition. And therefore, he cannot aspire to higher than what his condition entails. So therefore, he is a natural man and he is in his flesh. And so the fleshly man cannot receive the things of God. What you essentially knowing that this letter has so many corrective elements to it, what we can't escape from and what you can't escape from is Paul is setting up the Corinthians to test themselves in light of what is said. He's saying that this is true of the natural man. This is true of the spiritual man. Now, which one are you? And so he's setting these things before him and saying, here is the evidence that you're in the flesh. Or if you abandon the things that are fleshly, here is then the evidence and hallmark that you are in the spirit, life in the spirit. And so the contrast is not simply set up as a generic thing. But Paul is saying, I'm setting this up to help you understand that currently the conflict that you're in with respect to this hero worship and hiding in men and setting divisiveness and factions and schism in order. It's demonstrating that you are fleshly, 
So then you have to ask yourself if you belong in the household of faith and if you belong to God and if you belong in the fellowship. And he'll deal with this not only here, but with respect to immorality that they were allowing in the church, with respect to idolatry, with respect to the schism that was developing over what is proper to eat and what is not proper to eat, with respect to the Lord's Supper and some were desecrating the table. You'll see that all these things come up and Paul is saying, I want you to test yourself. I want you to test yourself. Are you regarding these things in the flesh, uh, spiritual gifts? Are you regarding them in the flesh or are you regarding them according to those who possess life in the spirit? And so Paul, as we get further along in the epistle, what he'll then do is he'll call for the expulsion, expelling anyone from the household of faith. And he'll tell them to do it. Expel anyone from the household of faith who are fleshly. Because what are they doing fellowshipping with those who are spiritual? Why are you giving them spiritual things if they can only appraise them uh, in such a way so as to misunderstand and cause deception around what is taught and what is believed? And so Paul sets this very plainly before the people. He says that the things of God are foolishness. They're foolishness to the natural man. They are foolishness to them. He cannot understand them. So now you understand why so many try today to accommodate the fleshly man with fleshly things, because you can't give fleshly people spiritual things. They don't understand you. They don't know how to interpret it and live by it. So you have to keep giving them fleshly things so that it agrees with their flesh and so that they operate according to the flesh. But Paul is calling the Corinthians for something more. He's saying, take my name off the marquee, take Cephas's name off the marquee, take Apollos's name off the billboard and marquee. And I want you to then regard and consider Christ. Let us stop pretending that the wisdom that Cephas, Apollos and Paul have are wisdom from their own selves, that it is what unites them is the wisdom of God. And so he's setting them uh, these things before the Corinthians to consider them. And to consider them for their lives and for their practice so that they would tear down their own idols and they would regard the men in the proper way. We'll see that in not only 1 Corinthians 3, but also in 1 Corinthians 4 when Paul has to remind them, we're servants. We're servants. We're not gods. We're not celebrities. We're not rock stars. We're servants. We've come in such a way so as to be sent by God and to minister to you on his behalf. And we are commissioned by him and to him be all the glory, praise and honor. And so Paul is trying to move them away from uh, this worship of relics and icons. And he wants them to consider and regard Christ because that is what spiritual people do in the way that we have defined what, what it means to be truly spiritual. And so he says the natural man can't understand these things. They're foolishness. You want to see a man or woman dead in his or her sins? Then what you do is you see how they regard the things of God, not just in theoretical agreement with things, but see if and how they put anything pertaining to God into practice. And that's what Paul is testing the Corinthians in. He's saying, I don't only want you to believe it. I don't only want you to confess it. I want you to put it to practice. And the reason is because he's talking to a church. And when you're talking to a church, 
a good many in a church can talk about God and speak about the things the word says. But the true test Paul is setting before them is, is how you regard the things of God. And if you put those things into practice, if you put them into practice. So here, this is the case that Paul is putting before the Corinthians. He's putting it before the Corinthians. They were looking as though, I'm sorry, they were not looking as though they were operating in the spirit. And so Paul's going to challenge them in such a way directly to say you're actually operating in the flesh. You're in the flesh. They were causing divisions and dissensions. That's how they were operating in the flesh, that there was divisions among them that they were causing. No one else was causing this. They were causing this. And they were causing dissensions among themselves. And they were causing rivalries among themselves. And they had even, as we will see, put those who led them to faith in Christ against one another. And they pit those individuals against one another as imaginary kings of their imaginary factions. And so Paul is saying this is certainly within the life of the church destructive. And yet standing above these things are those to whom Paul refers in verse 15, because look at what he says. He says that there are still some among you who are spiritual. That the whole church had not gone the way of being fleshly because then it would cease to be a church. What he's trying to get the fleshly to see is that there are those among you who are spiritual. And here's what they look like in verse 15. He says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. You know who was spiritual? Chloe and her people. They were spiritual. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. You know who was spiritual? Paul the Apostle. Appraised by no one. And I'll get into exactly what that means. Because he says, he who is spiritual appraises all things. A spiritual man, essentially what he is saying is, holds up under judgment or scrutiny. Because those who are spiritual, when I say spiritual man, I mean believers uh, overall, but the spiritual man holds up under judgment or scrutiny. Now, that means that the spiritual are always going to be judged and scrutinized. And sometimes it's fair and sometimes it's unfair. But those who are spiritual are appraised by no one while appraising all things. This doesn't mean the absence of certain and righteous judgment. What it means is when scrutinized, they are found out to be free from whatever the charges appear. So this encompasses all things related to God's revealed will. Those who are spiritual ought not to cast suspicion on the spiritual. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying those who are spiritual ought not to cast suspicion because the way in which appraisal is used here, it's the idea of taking something and setting before it judgment in order to make a case, bringing witnesses into the equation to render a specific judgment. And so Paul is essentially saying that the spiritual person is above that, not in and of themselves. They're above that because all of their sins have been placed on Christ. And so now they have freedom. And now that they have Christ in them and the mind of Christ, They can judge and appraise all things before them without themselves falling under that kind of scrutiny because they have no condemnation in Christ. And so Paul is saying that they themselves ought to be spiritually appraising things, not appraising things in the the flesh. 
And I believe as we look at this letter, what you'll understand about Paul is, as I said, a lot of what he does in Corinthians is he's setting up things that are true and will address all the outworking of fleshly acts that correspond to what he said before. Because in this situation, you'll remember what comes along then are super apostles and super apostles and other Corinthians. After they're not successful in raising Paul up as some kind of leader of a pseudo faction, they begin to criticize Paul. They begin to mock Paul. And you see that largely as we reach the end of first Corinthians, but as we begin second Corinthians and what Paul says is. I'm not under that kind of scrutiny because those are false charges. And he says those false charges are not in agreement in agreement with the word of God, because that's the standard for any appraisal, any appraisal to recognize the value of a Christian, because that is the proper use of an appraisal to recognize the value of a Christian. You have to hold the Christian to that standard by which he is valued. And so if he's valued by the word of God, your appraisal of the Christian ought to be based on what the word of God says. And so Paul says, we're not appraised by anyone in the sense that witnesses are brought forth to render some kind of judgment against them. So those who are spiritual ought not to cast suspicion on the spiritual for there. And, and, and I say that let's back up. I say that because in the in the conflict with what Chloe's people responded to. That's what was happening. That when you raise up people against each other, you are casting suspicions in their mind against the individuals who aren't in the faction. And you're casting suspicion upon the individual who, you know, Paul is better than Cephas. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get behind Paul and we need to be suspicious of Cephas. Or Cephas is better than Paul, and so we got to get behind Cephas because that guy, Paul, we have to be careful. It's casting suspicion that has nothing to do with what the man teaches or practices. And Paul says this is fleshly. He's going to say it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 1. This is fleshly. This isn't spiritual. If they are gods, if these are truly God's people, and this is what Paul is going to say in the verses that succeed after verse one of chapter three, if they are truly gods in the sense that they belong to him. Well, they surpass the judgments of the flesh. So to judge those who are spiritual in the flesh is not only a sinful act, it is a divide, a divisive act, an act that divides for there. If they are indeed gods, then they surpass these judgments. Now. This does not mean to cast off discernment. That's not what Paul is saying. But it means that fleshly judgments, it goes back to Matthew 7. Fleshly judgments are not to be used as a means to appraise those who are spiritual. Fleshly innuendos, assumptions, frustrations that do not lend itself to a spiritual appraisal of God's wisdom in a situation. In the same way. In the same way, in the exact same way, those who are spiritual appraise spiritual things. They appraise those things that are also fleshly and can come to right conclusions because, as Paul says, they possess the mind of Christ. So they appraise it. They scrutinize it. They bring it before judgment because later, even in this epistle, Paul will say, take every what? Take every thought captive. 
So never does he says, oh, they're spiritual, turn off the switch. No, he says they're spiritual, so then your judgments have to be spiritual and your appraisal has to be spiritual. And you will find that they are innocent of whatever the charges would otherwise be if we were trying to come to an accord based on the flesh. Fleshly people do this to each other. Fleshly people, they judge each other and they tear each other down based on fleshly ideals, human wisdom. And so Paul is saying that you ought not function that way. And he's saying it specifically to the church in Corinth because they were functioning in that way. But one can come to right conclusions because they possess the mind of Christ. How often is it that those who say they are, they are in Christ begin to appraise those who are in him with fleshly things? They begin to appraise those who are in Christ with fleshly judgments. But here is why that is not the way to go. Here is why we stand above what I would call another way of thinking about the term appraisal, these fleshly investigations. Well, it's because Paul brings in what Isaiah says, and he brings in the prophet Isaiah. And here he quotes him where where Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, that the spirit of God knows the mind of God. And therefore, it is further said that the spirit of God discloses the mind of God to believers. So then in the area of rendering judgments, in the area of everything concerning Christian practice, that should certainly flow from the heart, but certainly starts in the mind of the person it should reflect what Christ desires for those individuals. God has given us Christ and by his spirit in our salvation, he's given us Christ. And so then he says when he's looking at what Isaiah says in that particular context in Isaiah chapter 40, that we have the mind of God. We have God's spirit that now we have the mind of Christ. And so what he's saying between verses 14 and 16 is the remedy to this conflict that is beginning to usurp and undermine Corinthian fellowship is that we can think as God thinks concerning spiritual things. He doesn't say stop thinking. He says think as God thinks and judging fleshly things that have no business being imposed on spiritual things. It's why later on in this epistle, Paul is going to call the Corinthians to act in concert with God against things that they have allowed to fester and develop and overthrow the simple fellowship that they enjoy in Christ. That Paul says, I call you to act. I want you to act because you have the mind of Christ. I want you to, to then bring this forward and respond in such a way that would ref reflect God's will in this particular situation. But this also means something for you and for I and for us. But then this means our appraisal of all things must be spiritual. They must be spiritual. Now, we have defined that they must come from the wisdom of God. It is why Paul talked about the importance of God's wisdom, defining it, saying who has it, saying who and where it can be found in whom and where it can be found. So this is the charge for Paul to the Corinthians and my charge to you. You must see to it that you investigate and uphold things based on that which agrees with God's will. Let me repeat that. You must see to it that you investigate and uphold things based on that which agrees with God's will. 
This is both of self and others. We have to do it for ourselves and for others. And there is great temptation in our sanctification in all these areas. But specifically, we see the way of the Corinthians was not the way to go. It is also not the world of fleshly thinking and partiality and other things that may creep in that overtook the Corinthians. Because you can see it. It's partiality. It's divisiveness. It's vanity. And then you see that they begin to, because these factions are raging, they begin to have to protect those in the factions based on things that are not rooted in holiness, such as immorality, such as, well, here's how our faction regards the Lord's Supper. Here's how our faction does the spiritual gifts. And you see that Paul says, no, there should be agreement according to God's divine will. And I would also say the justification for doing that which is spiritual must come from God's word, his revealed will. It must come from his will. So it's not the world of fleshly thinking and partiality, but rather it is to see to it that everything we think and everything we take action for is from the standpoint of what Christ thinks. Because he says we have the mind of Christ. So we have to think, act, and speak in accords with what Christ thinks, did, and would have us to do. We must think as Christ thinks. That is what Paul the Apostle is telling the Corinthians to do. He's telling them think as Christ thinks. Don't build a faction pretending that Christ is involved, but rather follow the true living Christ and think as he thinks because you have the mind of Christ. You don't have the mind of Paul. You don't have the mind of Apollos. You have the mind of Christ. And so that is what he wants. So in chapter 3, verse 1, after saying that, after saying essentially that the Spirit of God searches the depths of God himself, because you and I cannot do that on our own. We must be born again to even begin to inquire and search God's will and understand it, put it into practice. But he says the Spirit does that, and the Spirit does it for us. The Spirit does it for us. Remember we talked about last time. God's wisdom is a wisdom that speaks, a wisdom that acts. It's not incoherent. That will prove very important for us when we get to what they were doing to desecrate the spiritual gifts, that there is a coherence. There's an understanding. There's a clarity. It works through the mind, through the whole person, flows out of the heart and the mouth and, and in our actions and our members toward one another. But here, Paul not only talks about it, he goes straight to where the Corinthians are in the placement of what he's laid out for them. For in verse one, Paul essentially says to the Corinthians, you are lacking in all that has been said. You are lacking in all that has been said. Look at verse one. And I, brethren, he addresses them as brethren. He says, could not speak to you as spiritual men. So we've defined what spiritual is, but I can't speak to you as spiritual men. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, let's stop there. The problem is that they were proclaiming that they were ready to be considered as profoundly mature. We talked last time about what does it mean to truly be mature in Christ? And you begin to strip away all the pragmatic things that man would say that means. But Paul says these people were acting like they were mature. 
And they were acting like that they were so mature because it takes a certain view of yourself that's not in step with how God sees you to think you're so mature that you're ready to restructure his church. And to restructure his church, you're saying, well, I want to see men in place to be factions. And I want now a catalog, a standard by which we appraise these men. And I want each of you to follow these men. And I want the church to not only operate in this way, but the church will be established and flourish in this way. So they thought that they were then in place to be a certain priesthood to push people forward into uh, what they were falsely designating as God's wisdom and his true church. And Paul says, you're infants. You're infants. You're in the flesh. You think you have reached a certain spirituality to look like the philosophical academy when really that's infant. That's infancy. That's not maturation. That's not spiritual. That's fleshly. And so Paul says you're lacking in all that has been said. In verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. The food was ready. It was prepared. I couldn't feed it to you. For you were not yet able to receive it. It's not a problem with me. It's a problem with you. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. We'll go into more of what that means. What does it look like that they are fleshly? And I would say that the problem that we're going to find, as we saw in the previous text that we covered last Sunday together, the problem then is one of maturation versus immaturity. It's maturation versus immaturity. We saw this in the previous text, that they could receive some things, but they could not receive all things because they were fleshly. And you'll see this doesn't actually get better as we go through the letter. It gets worse because they begin to justify their sins and then they begin to ask for the removal of Paul, the apostle, as one whom the Lord has sent before them because they not only begin to mock him, but they accept those who will tell them what they want to hear. And so Paul begins to plead with them on that basis. So it was not that they wouldn't receive anything at all. It's why Paul still says, you're my brothers. I love you. You're the church. But they could only receive some things. They couldn't receive all things. They could receive the basics, not the depths. They didn't want the depths. And Paul wanted to give them so much more than what he was giving them, both in the area of teaching and of practice. But they couldn't receive it. They couldn't receive it. Paul wanted to give them more. They were too busy. They were busy. And they were busy building their factions. They were too busy trying to redefine Paul and Apollos as their own personal cult leaders. And what's deceptive about this is through their imagination and through their own perception they had in their minds what they wanted Paul and Apollos to be, and they were consulting God's word and saying, this is who Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, and Christ are. They said, this is who we want them to be. And what they then did is got behind what they wanted them to be. And Paul is saying, I don't want to be what you want me to be. I want to be what God has called me to be. And so you need to tear down that idol in your mind that wants me to be your personal cult leader. 
But they were too busy thinking as consumers and not servants. That was their issue. They wanted something that they could get behind, that had a lot of flair behind it. They wanted something for purchase, something that benefited them in a consumer relationship. And Paul says, I can't give you more. I can't give you the spiritual things. I can't put you in position to reap the benefits of the blessing because you want what fleshly men want. You want to get behind something so that you can be seen. So that you can be heard. And so Paul says, I can't speak to you as spiritual men. He says it to them. I can't speak to you. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants of Christ. Now, I wish I, w- I wish I could tell you this was a past condition, but it's not, because when you look at verses two and three, he says you're still fleshly. He doesn't he doesn't try to move on from it and say, you know, uh, that was then. But we're, we're, we're working. He says, no, you're still fleshly. Like, I still can't do this. So some time has elapsed and I still can't speak to you the way that I want to speak to you because you're fleshly. Because you're fleshly. He had to speak to them as fleshly men. You know what that means? I have to witness to you. I have to proclaim the good news concerning Christ and his person and his wisdom. I have to tell you how wisdom is distinct from the wisdom of the world and from the wisdom from above. Because you don't believe that there's a distinction yet. So he says, I have to deal with you as spiritual babes, as infants. Yes, you're in the church. Yes, you are showing that you receive something, so you're not resisting all things, but I can't go further. And when he says that they are infants, this is not simply some change in speech pattern. It's not that I have to put you in a different program in the church. I got to put you with the teens when I want you with the adults. That's just trading pragmatism for pragmatism. He's saying, I could not say all that needed to be said to you. And to put you in a segmentation, to put you in a group that says, well, let's talk to you like little kids is not going to help the condition. What will help the condition is to repent and walk as spiritual men. That's what Paul is saying. But he says, I can't speak to you as spiritual men. I can only speak as infants. It's not simply a change in speech pattern. That's not what he's saying. But it is that he could not say everything that needed to be said to them. He had to show restraint in saying what needed to be said. Because why? They could not receive it. It would have fallen on ears not willing to take action based on what was said. This was not Paul's fault. It wasn't his fault because later in the epistle, they're going to say, hey, super apostles, false teachers, come in because he's not giving us enough. But Paul's saying that's not my fault. It was not that Paul couldn't say it. And it's not that he was scared to say what needed to be said. It was rather they were not ready to receive it. They weren't ready to receive it. Well, why? Why weren't they ready to receive it? Well, because they were fighting each other. They were too busy fighting each other. They were too busy causing dissensions and quite tired and bored with the Paul 
who determined to know nothing among them and preach nothing among them except Christ crucified. They were tired of Paul. His voice among them had become dull. They were bored with him. And so they ran off to their fleshly enjoyments of hiding in men. And Paul could not bring them all that they needed. He couldn't bring it to them. It was prepared to be brought to them, but they didn't want it. He had to limit their diet and nourishment because they were not able or ready to receive more. And he restricted their spiritual diet to milk. He didn't simply starve them, causing a certain malnutrition and apostasy in them to carry out the analogy, but he restricted their diet. He said, I'm just going to teach this, 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 this over and over and over again because you won't let me go further. It wasn't solid food. He restricted their spiritual diet to milk. Too much food, if he gave them, they would not be able to digest it. They were not developed enough to taste and digest all that God had for them. They were not able and listen, it's not simply that they lacked ability and that was on the case and to charge to Paul's account. No, they lacked the ability because they were malnourishing themselves on the praise of men and the fleshly indulgence of warring against one another in the flesh. And so Paul says, I could not do this for you. Look at verse three, for you are still fleshly. Well, what does it mean that they're fleshly? Does Paul define that for us? Yes, he does. He says, for there, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Because Christians don't have jealousy and strife among them. And Christians can receive the whole counsel of God when they're walking with God. And when jealousy and strife appear, they're repentant and they're sorrowful and they're going to one another. And yet in that case, they can now be given a full diet, a full diet. To strengthen themselves in the word and the cause of Christ. So he says, are you are you are you not walking like mere men? He's showing them that Paul, Peter, Apollos and Christ are not the leaders of their factions. They are. They built the factions, they own the factions, and they are reaping the fruit of the factions that they built. Because he puts a distinction. If you look at verse five and we'll uh, well, verse four for one says, I am of Paul. That's the that's the way that they're causing strife and, and jealousy. That's enough to cause strife and jealousy. I'm a Paul. You're not you're not you're not with Paul like how I'm with Paul. I'm with Paul. Well, I'm with Apollos. He says, are you not mere men? And then he says, Paul and Apollos don't act like mere men. We act like servants. Through whom you believe servants that come from the Lord. So why are you getting behind us that way? Why are you aggravated with us that way? Why do you appraise us as though we're that way? I love how Paul had the spiritual maturation, the boldness and the wisdom to distance himself from the perception of himself. He distanced himself from the perception, a perception that was rooted in idolatry, not perception just to protect as a PR image. But he says, wait, the people think I'm this 
And they want to get behind me in this way. And you see it even in Acts. You see it in John the Apostle. You see it in all the Apostles. You see it in Peter where they begin to in Barnabas. You see where it's like I'm not that way. I'm this. And you are this as well. So let's not be this. And let's be and that this would be, you know, the leader of your faction, the one in whom you can hide, one in whom, you know, uh, as people have done it with a whole religion has been established on doing this to Peter called Roman Catholicism. But he's saying, I'm not that. And Peter does it in his epistle. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow servant. And so Paul says, "I I had to restrict the diet. I had to restrict the diet because you're warring in the flesh. And then he says essentially that they could not grow and that they were not able to grow. Well, what was stunning their growth? As I've said, he says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? As long as there is rivalry, strife, dissension, jealousy, and factions, you are walking like men in the flesh walk. That is what Paul is saying. And I can tell you, these modern churches today have built their entire ministries on this very principle. And the people love it so. They have built their entire ministries on this principle. They don't want to take the labor of building for the honor and glory of Christ. But they want to build through rivalry, strife, dissension, factions, as though there's some kind of gang. But they do this because this is how men in the flesh operate. That's how fleshly men operate. They operate that way. Paul did not see their hiding in one another as a virtue. He didn't think it was virtuous to hide in one another. He saw it for what it was and wanted them to see it for what it was. But Paul is not saying that this is the only act of their jealousy and strife. This was the outworking of their jealousy and strife to raise up factions and schisms. And the real evil in this, the real evil in this was to compare even godly men to one another for the purpose of exalting one above the other. So they were looking at godly Individuals such as Paul, such as Peter, such as Apollos, and saying, let's not compare them in a sense as to build them all up and be thankful for them and understand what Paul will then teach in the verses that follow that one uh, was responsible for the planting, the other responsible for the warding, uh, the watering, and each one would receive their reward based on being attached to the one who sent them. Paul is not only saying this is the only act of their jealousy and strife, but it is the outworking of it. They compared godly men to one another for the purpose of exalting one above the other. It is wicked. It's wicked. And so Paul, Paul refuses a couple of things. He refuses to allow the Corinthians to turn into cult followers. He also refuses to allow the Corinthians to turn into consumers. Because what he says is, I'm going to explain to you how we're different than what you think we are. 
He says, what then is Apollos? Since you brought him up, let me explain to you who Apollos is and who Apollos is in his own mind and who Apollos is before God. And so I would then say those who will not explain to you the difference of your perception about them versus who they really are, are only interested in fanning the flames of your hero worship for them. That's all they want from you. Because this is the conflict. You realize this is the conflict that's happening in the church in Corinth. And it's so important that Paul addresses it twice in the first three chapters. He addresses it twice. So what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants. We're servants. We serve you. Servants through whom you believed. Meaning we gave you something that was not our own from someone who sent us so that you would believe in that capital S someone. Not in us. Even what we brought to you was not to solicit worship from you about our own persons. We brought this to you so that you would believe in Christ who sent us and you would worship him and him alone. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Maybe it wasn't happening all the time, but we could we can't even boast in what we brought to you. We can't boast in the frequency of how much we brought it to you. And we can't boast in the fact that you were somehow touched or moved by us. He's saying the Lord gave us the opportunity that we had. We took advantage of that opportunity. We brought before you his things and it caused in you belief. That wasn't us. That was him. It wasn't our frequency. It wasn't how often we did it. It wasn't how often you saw us. It was us being faithful to him. You received it and now you belong to him. And now you can therefore worship him. You don't have to build a faction around the middlemen. Because that's all we are. We're the middlemen. Praise God for those who stand in the gap for those who need to come to faith by testimony of someone else. And by testimony, I mean the teaching of Christ testifying openly. But Paul is saying we're just men. We're men. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted... So there were times, and I'm sure you understand all the analogies that could attach themselves to landscaping and gardening here. But what Paul is saying is, I planted. I planted. I took matters to set the seed where it was, to put it in the soil as I saw fit. Someone, Apollos, came along and watered it, cared for it. And what then grew was your salvation, your faith. But listen, Paul wasn't responsible for the growth. Apollos watering wasn't responsible for the growth. He says God was causing the growth. And so God is the one who caused it to grow. So why are we giving glory to men for what they do, think they ought to do or think they ought not do when really it is God who is causing the growth? It's God. He said, I simply planted. And he didn't go, hey, everyone, I'm planting seeds. Apollos didn't come along and say, hey, everyone, I'm watering. No, it was we did what we did because Christ sent us. And we placed the seeds in soil. That simple act of putting the seed in the soil. And the planter trusts that someone's going to water it. The water or trust that someone planted, but it's God who causes the growth. 
It's him. There's no fanfare surrounding this. I planted Apollos water. But God was causing the growth. So then look at what he says. Verse seven. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. I have always said in this area specifically. People can boast all day long about what they do, but you never do enough. People can feel like I'm not doing enough and perhaps your simple act was enough that was needed. But really what you ought to regard is it is God who causes whatever results, whatever happens. I charge whatever the result is to him. Every time we meet, we are thankful because in that simple act, we are showing that God has worked in our hearts and in our lives to bring us together. And whatever that looks like, it is God who caused it. It's him. How dare anyone stand in his way and say, you know what, God, let me help you. Your growth doesn't look like his growth. So let me add some artificial artificial uh, uh, process into this. He says, I planted, I planted. I planted, and I don't want glory for planting, because he's going to say that in verse 8. I don't want glory for planting. He's going to say that in verse 7. Apollos watered, but don't glory in Apollos for watering. All glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God. Paul refused to turn the Corinthians into cult followers. He refused to turn them into consumers. Praise God for men who will not do so. Do not begrudge them, for there are not many of us left. Do not begrudge men who say, glory to God for wherever I am in the link of the chain. Glory to him alone. I praise God that you're helped. But praise God for God's men. Praise him for them. Be thankful in your heart for them. I say this for myself as an encouragement, and I pray to you. Be thankful when they won't see you off from one personality cult to another, when they won't farm you into all these things that have nothing to do with Christ. Be thankful when they show you your true, exclusive, everlasting hope is in Jesus Christ alone and none else. Be thankful. Say, thank you, Jesus, that they're not playing with me. For the sin of the Corinthians is a subtle one. It is one that we see in the serpent of old. It is to take, listen to this, Godly things and godly people and to pervert your affections. You know who Satan did this to? God in the Garden of Eden. He did it to God. He said, if you don't like the command, change your God. The command is too restrictive. He tempted unsuccessfully Jesus in the same way in Matthew 4. Oh, a true Messiah would do this differently. I mean, you are the Messiah, right? So a Messiah feeds himself. A Messiah receives worship. Change your God. But if you think about it, God didn't allow it for himself in the garden. Jesus didn't allow it. And he told his prophets and apostles, you don't allow this. 
He wanted the temptation of the adversary, even in Corinth, capitalizing on their flesh. It was to cause them, and it is the same this day, to cause you to regard those who are used by gods as gods themselves. Well, I don't have that problem. Well, there's another side to this. You may not be regarding them as gods, but you may regard them as useless. And if they belong to God, they are not useless. And if they belong to God, they are not gods. They are servants. They are servants. Strengthening you in your sanctification. Helping you to walk with him more closely. So that out of your mouth will simply come the praise due to him and not them. Real men of God do not allow you to rob God's glory. Real men of God do not allow this. They're not comfortable with it. They don't allow it. They deflect you away from it and they deflect themselves away from it. And this does not mean there should lie in you or the Corinthians a coldness, a taking for granted those who are truly gods. Because Paul did appeal to them. Paul appealed to the Corinthians and I appeal to the Christians. Love us, encourage us, care for us in Christ. For we refuse to send you off in the fleshly and destructive excitement of walking like mere men. We refuse it. We refuse it. Paul refused to hold himself up and to hold up Apollos and Cephas, Peter, as heroes. For God alone is the hero. He is the hero. He is the savior, the redeemer. The capital F friend who saved us because we could not save ourselves. That is true of every person who has tasted this salvation. But even then, Paul did not regard his own work and Apollos' as worthless. He's not saying our work is worthless. Our work wasn't anything. Our work isn't to be esteemed. He did not say to disregard he and Apollos, but rather to appraise them correctly. And to regard them in the sight of God through the eyes and mind of Christ. And in doing so, you will render proper thanksgiving to God for them. This is what he wanted for the Corinthians. This is how they were to live their lives in consideration of the work that was entrusted to them and given to them and charged to them. We will look next time to how this played out in the lives of the Corinthians. Let's pray.